So I'm going to talk about, uh, in fact, a subject that Thomas gave to the talk, which is uh, the personal in art, finding the personal in art. And if you don't understand what I'm saying, I'm recording it, and I'll put it on my podcast on my website so I don't have a second chance to <laughs> listen to it. <laughs> and you can slow it down and listen to every word. Uh, <laughs> so, but besides that, I have a handout which um, Natalie is going to pass around so that if you can't hear what I'm saying, you can also follow. Um, and it has a simple double readership path where you can read the headings and then the text. And I'll probably say things totally different that's what's on the, the handout. So um, you'd eventually need the writing and <laughs> the audio to, to get it all. Uh, what, what I did, what we do, let me start with this, uh, talking a little bit about myself and Natalie. I'm originally from France, and I moved to the United States in 1986 to go to school at NAU in Flagstaff. And I got my master's degree and my bachelor's degree in reverse order uh, from NAU. And eventually, after I got on my, my master's, I thought, my God, now what? You know, because I, I was studying originally photography. And as time evolved, I started thinking that photography was best done in the field. And I started studying writing, English. And eventually, I started studying rhetoric. Um, and when you have a master's in rhetoric, there's not much you can do. You know? And it dawned on me that all of a sudden, as I was teaching, because I was a grad student, a lot of my students had very specific classes where we would take. And it, it dawned on me when I got my master's that they had an idea of the career they wanted to do when they graduated. And so I thought, you know, that's obviously not my case, so I have to do something. And the only thing I could think of was to get a PhD. So I went and applied for a PhD program and eventually got started working on a PhD in Michigan at Michigan Technological University in Houghton, Michigan, in the northern part of Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula. And I worked on my PhD for years and got all the way to writing my dissertation and started on that. And at that time, uh, I was extremely destitute. I mean, I had nothing, basically. Uh, you know, you, if you stay a student long enough, you will eventually get totally broke. You know, it's only a matter of time. Um, and I had got to that point. I was totally overworked, and I was um, working extremely hard at, you know, keeping up with my classes, writing papers for presentations, taking my test, writing whatever I had to write, and then teaching two or three or four classes a semester, uh, some of them being photographies, others being technical writing and, uh, and English 101 and 102. And all of that is explained in my book. The long, that's the short version. But I think it's important to mention so you know where I'm coming from. And eventually, I had one particular teacher that acted in a racist manner towards me. And that was the straw that broke the camel back. I thought, you know, I'm working so hard. I'm doing something which I don't particularly like. At this point, I had realized that academia was more, you know, about things that weren't very, you know, tangible or ten not tangible enough for me. And I thought, you know, how much harder would it be to do exactly what I want? And at that point, I thought, you know, it can't be any harder. I'm working so hard. I'm putting up with so much. I have no money. And then people are acting in an inappropriate manner. And if it starts as a grad student, it's going to get worse when I become a faculty member. So I decided, basically, to do exactly what I wanted, which is doing photography. And that's how it started. And that was in 1995, uh, I think. And um, by 1997, I was doing this full time. And now that's actually all we do. And actually, we are so busy that we have to do it together, because otherwise we couldn't keep up with the, you know, the demand, basically. Uh, it's a lot of work, 
um, in part because there is what is seen, which is the photograph, <laughs> and then there is what is not seen, which is the business. And in the book, I actually separated the two in different chapters. I have one chapter called Being an Artist, and then I have another chapter called Being an Artist in Business. And until last week, I was actually fairly unaware of the impact of the second chapter, which is actually chapter 10 or 11, but the, the one called Being an Artist in Business, until I checked on Amazon to see how the book was selling, and it was number one in careers. And it's been number one in, in careers for a solid week now, to the point where I realized that actually it can be used, I suppose, to start a career in photography. And uh, actually, I have a blog on Amazon, and uh, I actually entered you know, an entry to that effect, saying that, you know, I suppose this book can be used to start a career in photography. So, you know, one thing goes to another, and I suppose when you do what you really love, I think there is no real way to control it. Where that's going to go, I think um, I've been very, very interested in writing on, on the subject of success, and I haven't really done it because I'm not sure how to merge photography and success. But maybe if the book sells well in the path of career, well, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously opening the avenue, you know, um, in that direction. So anyway, this is a brief introduction, you know, to what we do and how I got to where I am now. What I want to talk about tonight is completely different, which is finding the personal in art, which in a sense is tied up to what I just said, because the only way that you're going to find the personal in art, both as an artist and as a collector, uh, and, and I'll talk about this much more in a few seconds, is if you are personal about what you do. I, I meet and I teach a lot of students that tell me I want to develop a personal style. And then immediately they say, but I don't want it to be too personal. <laughs> okay. Uh, usually when I say that, there's a lot of laughs in the class. And what it means is a lot of people here are probably not involved directly in the arts, at least that's my guess. Because artists know exactly the problem. They want it to be personal, but they don't want to expose themselves too much. And you just can't do that. You know, it'd be like me coming here to talk to you and saying, I'm going to talk tonight, but I'm going to have an accent that's not my accent, right? You can't do it, <laughs> you know? You've got to be yourself. And in art, there is just no way to hide yourself, okay? Unfortunately, well, fortunately, depending on where you come from, if you go to an art gallery or you go to a museum as an artist or you go to any place where your work is going to be shown, the first thing they're going to ask you is not to tell them about, you know, your life. It's to tell, to show them your work. They're going to want a portfolio. They're going to want a box of prints. They don't care what it's in, basically. They just want to see what you do. Because eventually, an, ex, you know, an artist that has achieved a certain level, or somebody that has a lot of knowledge in the arts, you know, a collector or an art curator, can tell everything about the artist from the work, okay? <laughs> Including whether the artist is being honest or not, okay? And that's where the personal comes in. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to know what you like to do and what you don't like to do. And, and that's the subject of the talk tonight. So one thing that's very important, and that's where Thomas pointed out, I wrote this for this presentation tonight from the perspective that I was talking not only to artists, which is what I normally do, I normally talk to photographers, but also talking to collectors of art or people who love the arts and you know, may not have started a collection, but eventually will. It's very difficult to love the arts and not start a collection. So, you know, it's basically aiming at both. And one of the things that I realized as I was writing this text is that basically the issues are the same. Okay? And we're going to see what these issues are. 
when you are an artist and you create work, and being an artist is not, you know, some people tend to say that, you know, and you hear that a lot among photographers. I'm not sure if I'm an artist. It's not for me to say if it so happens, I'll let somebody else tell me. Being an artist is not a title like, you know, or, or being of royal descent, <laughs> you know, or having blue blood, like we say in France, you know. Being an artist is just being another human being that just happens to be involved in the arts. There's, there's really no pedestal attached to it, no, no glory attached to it. And I think a lot of people think, well, if I say that I'm an artist, it's pretentious, right? And I suppose the same could happen for collectors. If I say that I'm an art collector, it's pretentious. You, you, you are an art collector the minute that you have two pieces. <laughs> right, because two is a collection, right? <laughs> you know, and then three is a larger collection, and then four is a bigger collection. One is not a collection. One is having something. A collection is two, right? So, so there's no pretense associated with that. So when I say I'm an artist, I'm just saying who I am. I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal. One is not better or worse because one is an artist. One is simply aware of what one is. The same with collectors. Okay, there's no real difference. But the whole idea here is that. Finding the person in art is finding what you like, whatever that might be. That might sound si simple enough, and you know it's very, very simple. There's nothing easier than finding what we like. But at the same time, there is one problem, and that is the larger society or the larger group to which we belong that, in a sense, might come against what we like or might criticize what we like because they don't like it. Well, there's good news and bad news. In art, there's always going to be people that like what you do, and there's always going to be people that dislike what you do. That's just the way things are. I do landscape photography, which to me seems the most benign medium or the most benign subject that I can think of. You know, I'd, I'd, I would think that a, a subject that's tendential, that would bring criticism, that would bring, you know, hot, you know, heated reactions would be political art, for example, or, you know, photographing whales being you know, defended by Greenpeace or things like that, but not photographing a sunset. And yet, there are people that will come and just be adamant about the fact that they have an issue with it, whatever the issue might be. So there's just no way to step away from it. You do art, immediately you, en you involve people that love it and people who hate it or dislike it. I don't like the word hate. If you collect art, you will meet the same exact issue. People will love your collection and other people will dislike it profoundly. And the very simple example of that is to, find, to think of a particular style of art. If you collect Impressionism, for example, you're going to displease people that, that don't like Impressionism. If you like Cubism, you're going to displease people that don't like Cubism. On the other hand, people who love that kind of art will obviously be very interested in your collection. So you're going to have criticism no matter what. The thing to keep in mind is, is who is your audience? And this is probably... I'm already ahead of myself. But this is really the important aspect of art. Art is done for an audience, both as an artist or as a collector, an amateur of art. We meet a lot of photographers when we teach that say, I don't need an audience. That's fine. You know, I'm not here to impose audience on anybody. But the bottom line is that the minute you want to show your work, be it in a museum, a gallery, an art show, even in your home and have people come over, you're going to have an audience, <laughs> and you're going to need an audience. Otherwise, you're not going to show it to anybody. And how do you attract these people? You attract them by finding who is your audience. And your audience, obviously, are people who love your work. 
Okay, and that's very important to understand. Your audience are not people who profoundly dislike your work or dislike your collection. The audience of an impressionist are people who like impressionism. It's not people who hate impressionism, right? You know, and again, it might sound very self-explanatory. It's not. I myself made the mistake, and many artists make the mistake, and I would assume many collectors as well, of believing that, I that my job, or part of my job, is convincing everybody that doesn't like my work to like my work. It's just a very easy trap to fall into, thinking that, you know, because it's landscape and not, you know, political art, for example, there's no reason why nobody or everybody shouldn't like it. And so coming from there, then the mission becomes to explain to people why we should like it. And you waste an enormous amount of time. I mean, you can literally waste years of your life doing that. And at best, with, you know, most people that come at it not liking it, what you achieve is that at the end of the day, or the end of the conversation, people look at you and say, well, you know, you made some good point, I'll think about it. <laughs> and, and you've wasted your time. They'll, they'll think about it until you're out of sight and then they'll go right back to the frame of mind they were in before. So it's very important to understand that there is such a thing as a critique, okay? In art, it's, it's, a, it's a role, you know, it's a, it's a job. But that's not the job of the artist. And, and the job of the artist isn't to seek critiques, which are basically people who don't like your work or don't like your collection. The job of the artist is to do something that the artist really likes, and leave it at that. Let, let the dogs bark, in other words, you know, and, and uh, everything will be fine. So our critics is really number three in the handout here. And I, I have my pass number two. One aspect of art, and, and I'm talking here about personal style, and the reason why I pick personal style is because it is the hardest thing to achieve in art. I'm not sure you know, if you came here tonight expecting that I was going to teach how to take a better photograph, um, if that's the case, it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, it's in my book, but I don't, I'm not planning to do that tonight. I'm not that interested in the technique of photography, not because I'm not good at it, but because I'm bored with it. And so I'll talk briefly about technique, because I think it's something that should be said. People that work with me closely know where I stand, but obviously I have to talk about it here. There is two aspects to any art medium. And photography, the way I approach it, is an artistic medium because I approach it as fine art. I'm not photographing products. I'm not photographing people. I'm not photographing houses. I'm not photographing you know, anything that a client would tell me to photograph. I'm photographing whatever I please. And I have no goal of taking a photo with the intent of selling that photo better than the than other photo. I'm just creating with the intent of expressing myself. And then, if it so happens that it's selling well, great. If it doesn't sell very well, no problem. So I get that question a lot. Do you, when you photograph, do you actually think about how well it's gonna sell? I don't. No more than I think you know, a true artist would think how well is this painting gonna sell. You, know, you just create, and then whatever happens, happens. But what's important is that in any art medium, there are two aspects. And photography is an art medium. There is an artistic aspect, and there is a technical aspect. And ideally, as the artist, we should have a 50-50 spread, 50% art, 50% technique. And you know, understandably, it can go 70, 30, you know, or 60, 40, or something like that. But definitely, you don't want to have 90, 10, or 100, 0, okay? Which is you know, a mistake that a lot of people make. In photography, if we look at men who study and practice photography, we find that most men are very heavy on the technical side. 
and, and not very involved in the artistic. To the extent of having extremely perfect photographs from a technical perspective that are totally devoid of any artistic interest, to put it politely. <laughs> On the other hand, we find that women tend to be much more artistic to the point of having no concern for the technique. So we have work that's extremely creative, extremely artistic, but without any technical quality. Neither is good, <laughs> right? The true masterpiece, if we go in that direction and talk about you know, a very, very high-level work of art, is, is both technically proficient and artistically inspired. That is, you understand the technique, but then there is an artistic intent. There is a goal as far as expressing an idea, which in photography and any other visual art will have to be expressed probably through visual metaphors of one way or another. That is something that stands for something else. Even colors, you know, or contrast, or the size of the photograph, not just the physical objects in the photograph, can be used as visual metaphors. What that means is that a number of things can be deducted from this sort of overview of the medium as being technical and artistic. The first one is that technique is something that you can learn once and forget about because it doesn't change. I mean, obviously, if the technology changes, then the technique is going to change as well. When we move from film to digital, we have to relearn everything. But then a lot of things, we are just the same that we would do now on the computer as opposed to in the darkroom. That's a very important statement because we have you know, people that suffer from the malady of extreme technicalities. <laughs> people that basically spend their entire life studying the technical. That, that thing that they have to go and work at it again in order to get better at, at focusing, for example, or at exposing the photograph, or at getting the colors right you know, from a technical standpoint. You really only need to, to learn it once. Every camera eventually has the same exact you know, settings on it. The cameras change. You know, now with digicams and digital cameras, it's very difficult to pick a camera that you're not familiar with and figure out where the settings are because everything is different and everything is software menus. So unless you have spent some time with the camera, you can't figure it out. But nevertheless, the settings are the same. They have start, shutter speed, ISO, you know, focal, things like that. You need to learn it once. Once you've learned it, you're done with it. The same for the computer. Once you've learned how to use you know, a certain type of program, you're done with it. There is actually a lot of photographers today, a lot of artists that don't upgrade their programs or don't upgrade all the time. That is, they don't get all the versions. They might get one version, then pass one, and get the next one, or bypass a couple of them, because they don't want to relearn the software. It gets in the way of the artistic. Because we have this other thing to take care of, right? If we really want to create art, we have to take care of the artistic. And the artistic, unlike the, the technical, has to be addressed each and every time because it changes. It changes all the time. On the one hand, the artistic does not require much training uh, like technical. That is, you don't have to sit in a classroom and take notes. But on the other hand, it changes all the time. Why does it change? It changes because we change. As we get older, we change. As we have different experiences in life, we change. As we see things that we hadn't seen before, because maybe they were, you know, they are not in our face. They are more subtle. They are, they are more hidden. They are more maybe harder to find. We change. As we create something, we get bored with that, and we start to create something else. As, as we express a message, we might say, well, I'm tired of saying this. I want to say something else. We change. You know, a very good 
you know, I said comparison would be writing. The words stay the same, but the message of the writer is different. If you read Mark Twain and across all of the volumes that he wrote, you know, pretty much use the same words, but things are very different from the beginning to the end. Okay. So that's the first and very important lesson. We change from the technical, you know, that we can study once and, and basically we use our lives. We have access to the artistic which changes all the time. That's true for the artist, that's true for the collector as well. What makes a good photograph, you know, if you're collecting photographs, is basically a set of values, you know, a set of technical facts that's not going to change from one print to another. But the, the, the message that the print expresses is going to be different from one photo to another. It's never going to be the same. Okay? And so, you know, a collector, very similarly to an artist, has to learn, you know, what the technical is. And then, later on, really focus on the artistic to put together a collection that's not just technically perfect works, but expressive works. I was just reading yesterday in a French magazine the, the collection that Yves Saint Laurent put together in Paris, which is you know, a very, very extensive art collection, about 800 pieces. He, he collected it with another person, and I can't remember his name, but Yves Saint Laurent was the very famous you know, fashion designer that died last year, and so his collection is going to be sold by Christie's, uh, I think, you know, this year, later this year. And the way this other person was telling with the collection, there is nothing technical about it. A good painting is a good painting. <laughs> you know, it's painted well. <laughs> you know, but the choice of this piece and that piece are really done at the level of the expressiveness of the artist, what the artist wants to share okay, and express. You know, I'm not sure how familiar all of this is, but they are true facts. They are not ideas from the top of my head. They are just not talked about much. We live in a highly technical society, and we are highly technically oriented, and there's no mysteries about it. You know, you, you buy a car today, and uh, you have options on that car that not only weren't there in the previous, you know, couple of generations, but just would not even down on somebody that, you know, bought a car in the 60s. I mean, you know, the, the level of of the dials on the LCD screen for the CD player. You know, you have 47 settings, you know. You have settings for, you know, the volume of the alarms on, on all of these things, you know. You, you have, are, sometimes you can't get out of certain menus because they are so deep. I mean, you get to the point where you start to wonder, at what point do I start to drive this vehicle, <laughs> right? You know, and stop fiddling with the menus, right? Because it's so complex. You know, computers are obviously extremely technical machines. Phones, cell phones, you know, the iPhone and all of these are extremely technical devices. It takes an enormously long amount of time to learn how to use them. So it's no wonder that we are very, very technical. But at the same time, without, that just won't do the job. There is this other side, which is the artistic side, and we have to pay attention to it. And Natalie and I decided to teach photography, essentially from an artistic perspective, because we believe that, first of all, the two are important, the artistic and the technical, but also as we become more and more technically, let's say, proficient, and as the devices that we use, the cameras, the computers, the software, become better and better, more and more automatized, the technical sort of takes care of itself. It's now possible to go to Best Buy, to just name one place, and it can be any of them, and get a digital camera for $500, a printer for $500, use the software on your computer, and do basically photographic prints that would rival and maybe exceed the average print from the 70s or the 80s without any training. And that's a fact. I mean, we see it happen. So the question then becomes, if you want to do this full-time, 
where is your edge? Where is your advantage? How do you compete? Because everything is competitive. This is a very competitive environment. How do you compete? Certainly not on the level of the technical, because if you go and say, well, you know, I spend $1,000, let's try 10, <laughs> right? Maybe that will get me further. You know, another person with another 10,000 can do it. If you go for 50, which is not hard <laughs> in digital photography today, um, or 100, another person, there will be less of them, but an, another person can buy the exact same equipment. So you're back at square one. The difference, I truly believe, between... Uh, and, and the competitive edge today in photography is really at the level of the artistic because we can't program it into the software at all. It might come, you know, I suppose, when we start to have widespread uh, feature recognitions in software that the cameras will be able to say, you know, position it that way, you know, compose it according to the rule of thirds, use a diagonal, use an S-curve, you know, use half and half or whatever. We're not there yet. And even if that happens, it wouldn't reach the level of metaphors. Visual metaphors are still not something that can be programmed, uh, you know, and, and probably would be a long, long ways. And eventually, I think that, you know, somebody in the audience might, might say, well, eventually it will happen, and I can prove it. I have no doubt. But, I, you know, I, so, you know, don't, don't think that I'm against that. I'm not. But at that point, I think we are talking about machines that are pretty much human. <laughs> You know, and so we would be able to have a conversation with the machine. <laughs> and I'm not saying that, that that's something to look forward to, but I would think that at that point, we'd be that far into the future, to the point where the machine actually is the artist. So I don't think that it would change much to what I'm saying. Uh, so it's a very interesting field. So number two, like I said, I, I will digress. <laughs> number two has a lot to do with why people have a, a difficult time finding a personal style. And to go back a number of steps, personal style is the hardest thing to achieve in art, be it at, at the level of the artist or at the level of the collector. How do you express your personal style through a collection is just as difficult as answering how you express your personal style through your own work. Okay? The key is first, like I started this presentation, to realize that you cannot have a personal style and not be personally involved. It has to be you. <laughs> Somebody asked me during the last workshop, how do I know that I have a personal style? Or how do I find a personal style? I said, it, you know when it's you, when you're, you're in the work. You know, it's, it's, it's about you. I can't tell you what your personal style is. I can simply help you bring it out. You have to be physically involved. You have to be emotionally involved. That's eventually the, the key secret. Too many people, I think, do this at a very superficial level where they are not physically or emotionally involved. And eventually, the problem is, you know, there's really no particular problem until you want to have an audience. But the minute you have an audience and you want to have an audience and you have a show, if you're not emotionally involved in your work and you don't share that through your work, the audience isn't going to be emotionally involved. Okay? And if you've been at a show, either you showed work that you did or you went to a show and looked at work that somebody else did and the answer was or the, the response from the audience was there's not much there it's probably because the artist either wasn't emotionally involved or did not care much about the subject okay? you, you don't get better in art by working with subjects that you don't like and I think that's number I think towards the end here 
number six on projects. There's an interesting concept in art where people say, and I first encountered that when I was working on my PhD and it was one of the professors that I was studying with that actually told me that. And I thought it was totally ridiculous. She came to me one day and she, and she was doing watercolors and Natalie knew her. And she said, what should I start painting? <laughs> you know, as the subject, right? Since, you know, you, you've studied art. What should I start painting? And I looked at her and I said, well, why don't you start with whatever you would paint if you had just a couple more days to live? That would probably do it. And she said, oh, I don't want to do that. That's too personal. I'm not good enough to, tar to do this. And I looked at her and I said, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. I mean, how should I know? But the fact is that if you had just a couple of days to live, you'd, you'd have to be good enough, right? You wouldn't have a choice. In other words, you're, you're using time as the luxury of choice. But the fact is that you really don't have that much luxury of choice because, you know, time is running out anyway. And so she went and painted things that she did not care much about to get better and then eventually, when she was good enough, work on, you know, the one thing, whatever that might be, that she really cared about. That's a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake for a number of reasons. The first and most obvious is we have no idea how time is going to go by, right? So... You know, if we think we have the luxury of time, we are delusional at best or, you know, stupid at worst, <laughs> you know, because we really can't tell the future. The second thing is that getting better by working on a subject that you don't care isn't going to make you much better <laughs> because you're bored with the subject, okay? Art isn't exactly like changing tires on a car. You don't practice on a dummy, <laughs> right? I mean, changing tires, you know, I suppose for a pit crew can be done on the dummy race car. It doesn't have to be the real car. Because eventually, if you're fast at taking out the nuts, you're going to be fast taking out the nuts on any car. But with art, it's not a mechanical device. We're not doing a mechanical act. We're doing an act of expression. And so we can't be very expressive unless we care about the subject. And the same applies to artists and to collectors. If you collect work that you don't care about, you're not going to put together a collection that's very exciting for other people and probably not very exciting for you. But we run into the same problem with collectors, and that's where you know, there is some interesting similarities here. When I was reading the essay with, about Saint Laurent yesterday, Saint Laurent is dead, so it's his friend who is talking about it. The, the reporter that interviewed him said, how did you get started with a collection? He said, well, at the beginning, we didn't have a collection because we were broke. <laughs> we couldn't afford anything. And he says, well, how did it start? He says, well, we, we made a decision. We bought the first piece. It was a bird, and I, and I don't remember the name of the artist. And he said, that piece is not for sale. It probably has a very high emotional value to the collector. He said, but after we bought this piece, we made a decision that we would not buy anything that we did not truly really like, regardless of price. And that meant waiting years. I mean, obviously, Saint Laurent became a very wealthy person, but wasn't wealthy to start with. His parents had lost everything during the war. He had nothing, basically. He became famous and wealthy because of his... Uh, he revolutionized the world of fashion, essentially taking masculine fashion and adapting it for feminine clothing, everything from A to Z. <laughs> and I think that's how far he pushed it, made him as good as he was, because he pushed it all the way. And there was nothing that was taboo for Saint Laurent that men could wear that women couldn't wear, but he made it look good. So that's, that's the art. The technique of Saint Laurent was to take masculine fashion and turn it into feminine fashion. The art of Saint Laurent was knowing how to do it. 
<laughs> which is harder. Anybody can have the idea. And I suppose that other people had it. But he um, turned it into an art form. The same holds true with, um, 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 you know, the, the writer who died uh, in Albuquerque. Um, Tony yeah, Tony Hillerman, you know, died uh, three days ago, I think. Tony Hillerman has put together a style of writing which is very unique, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with, which is what he called, and the critics called, tribal detective stories, okay, so tribal mysteries. Hillerman acknowledged himself that he had, very early on, I think at the age of 15 or 16, read a book that gave him the idea. The book was about a, a mystery that was solved by a native in, a, in Australia, in the outback, and I forgot the name. But you can easily do a search on the internet and fill in all the blanks. <laughs> he acknowledged that. But the, the genius of Hillerman was to take it to an entirely new level where it actually became affordable in, in the sense of understanding, not affordable in terms of money, but affordable in the sense of access to everybody in the world, where it rivals with you know, detective novels from Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes <coughs> and, and so on. So the technique of, of Hillerman is to adapt tribal mysteries to the Navajo reservation, but the art is knowing how to do it. <laughs> and we find that in every art form, okay? There is, you know, I target with photography because that's my, you know, sort of little glass bowl, you know, that I study, but it applies to any art form. The artistic and the technical are here. And what we find out is people that are purely technical really, you know, have, have a hurdle that they cannot overcome, and people that are purely artistic have another hurdle. If, if uh, Saint Laurent had been purely artistic at the level of fashion and never had had this technical idea, he would have remained a very good designer, but without much insight, okay, without much to bring to the world. So the two are there all the time. My recommendation, whether you do art or collect art, is to do what you love, what, what you're really, really passionate about. That, that's basically what I do. That's how I got started. Um, when I got fed up with academia, and I don't dislike academia. It's, for certain people, it's, it's exactly what they need. It wasn't for me. It worked up to a point, and then at some point, I realized that uh, you know, I, had some, I had some issues with it. But the answer is really to do what you love and, and not you know, follow the path of trying to do something you don't care until you're good enough to do something that you care. We meet the same with people who, you know, when we teach, uh, retire and then say, you know, all my life I did something I did not care about and now it's time. And, and then their body starts falling apart, um, you know, their health starts to decompose. I mean, you know, they have enormous problems. It's too late. I, I collect sports cars and uh, I started the collection because I had a customer who had, he told me, he says, my boss has a Porsche GT, that's a half million dollar car. And I said, wow, you know, how is it? He says, I can't ride in it because my back is shot. <laughs> okay. And I thought, wow, I don't want to be there. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I have to do this before my back is shot, you know, <laughs> obviously, because that's a problem. You know, you, these are not things that you can appreciate sitting in, in your garage. You have to drive them, you know. And so, you know, that, that, that holds true for all sorts of things in life where don't wait. You know, I mean, I, I have people that actually told me, they say, well, you can be an academic and then when you retire, you can do photography. Well, I'm way happier now. <laughs> I bypass the academic part altogether. Um, and I'm not saying that I don't like academia. It just did not work out for me. In a sense, I'm an academic in, this, in my training because, you know, I, I obviously studied 
read at least 100 books, which is a minimum required, right? And, <laughs> and uh, I have the knowledge of how to do the research, and I have the knowledge of how to put forth an argument, and you know, I have the confidence of, of standing up and saying, you know, I think I know what I'm talking about, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so you know, that's, that's important, but on the other hand, I, I felt that it was gonna limit me, and so I, I wanted something more. Yeah. When you were talking about people being uncomfortable with uh, being personal in artwork. We'll, we'll have to take a break now. <laughs> no, no, let, let's finish. Let's, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. You don't forget otherwise. Go ahead. I'm, I'm very interested. Um, when you're talking about people that are having a hard time with the personal or, and what they do, you think that's because they're not, they don't have, they haven't explored their opinions or they haven't made a strong opinion about things or had enough things to make choices about what is personal mm. to them? There's, there's many reasons. I mean, all of the ones you mentioned are good, you know, but I used to be extremely shy. You know, I'm not anymore <laughs> because I realized that shyness prevents me from doing what I love. Eventually, you know, I mean, all, you know, I can give you this answer. It might not be an answer you like, you know, I don't know, but it's a good answer. Who cares about the reasons? Let's just find a solution. We, I mean, that's also something that's important. This is a proactive endeavor. I'm more, in, you know, if you run a business, we, I'm not so interested in analyzing the solution and writing a book about it. Uh, you know, analyzing the problem, writing a book about it. I'm very interested in finding the solution, using it, and, and moving on. You know? And the same with art. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that all the reasons you give are, are true. But there's others. Parents, society, personal beliefs, religion, superstition. We have a friend from Lebanon. She told me she grew up in a stone hut with a wood, you know, an earth floor. And now she lives in a 7,500 square foot mansion. And, and I, I had this conversation with her. You know, I said, you and I both had our lives transformed because I, I, I did not grow up in a stone hut with stone floor, uh, earth floors, but you know, I grew up in government housing. You know, um, so it wasn't much better. <laughs> and, and she said, America liberated me. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, we had so many superstitions in Lebanon and it's holding people back. So that would be another one. There's many reasons. But eventually what matters is the solution. And the solution, uh, to make a long story short, is to do what you love. If you are passionate about what you want to do and you have no choice but to make it happen because without that, you're not going to be complete, the solution is right in front of you. And the solution is, is to work. Uh, because I, one of the... I'm not sure about the time, but... Okay. Let me do this. One of the things that I wanted to talk about also is the concept of projects. A lot of people say, how do I develop a personal style? And we, we, can't, we can rack our brands and think, I like this, I like that. But eventually, that doesn't generate any artwork. The solution is to have a project. Design a project and work on it. And that project can be a creative project if you're an artist. Or it can be a collection. The collection can have a multitude of focuses. You know, from the very tacky to the very sophisticated. The collection that I would think is of the highest caliber is a collection that's about the spirit of the collector, the, the personality of the collector, but we do have people that can collect anything that has penguins on it. You know, <laughs> you know and I'm not here to comment on that, but you know, that seems to be the two extremes. As you work on a project, you focus your energies. As you focus your energies, you actually become more productive. 
A lot of people, when I say that, say, can I have several projects? It's a free country, yes, you can. But the more projects you have, the less focused you are. And so my answer is this. Try with one project and see if that doesn't just about do it. <laughs> if you find yourself having too much time on your hands while working on this project that you're passionate about, you know, start another one. But most likely you'll find out that you don't. It's very, very difficult to work on more than one project at once. And my recommendation, because it seems to be an obsession, probably coming from the fact that a lot of people have learned to multitask. Well, we can multitask. We can drive and answer the phone and probably listen to the radio, but not with art. Art isn't a multitasking activity. Art is a single tasking activity where it's about us. And we can't really divide our brain in several pieces and, and do one style here and one style there. So focus your energies um, in, in one direction. Get started. If the project so happens to be going great and you find more time, then I think it's a free for all. But it, it usually isn't the case. Um, so since we are running out of time, yeah, oh, I see. And then, then we start, yeah, right, okay. So let's, let's do the break, and uh, we'll, we'll go back to that after the break. Thank you, yeah.